education and careers can often put us in a position to serve our communities in unique ways. Maxine Condor discovered this somewhat by accident when a small misunderstanding sent her zigzagging across the world as a Navy nurse. She broke all kinds of barriers along the way and made sure once she opened a door, it stayed open for other women. Guiding her through it all was a love of the work and an open mind. I really like nursing and I really like the Navy. And I was willing, because of that, I was willing to work hard. I was willing to take chances and work. If they'd say, how would you like to do this? Sure, I'll give it a try. Why not? I'm Michelle Welch from Utah Women's Walk. And this is Legacies, a podcast dedicated to preserving the inspiring stories and wisdom of Utah women. In 1975, Maxine became the second woman ever to achieve the rank of Rear Admiral in the U.S. Navy. I spoke with her in 2006 about this historic achievement and her life leading up to the appointment. I'd like you to talk about your background, first of all. I was born in Bingham Canyon, Utah. My parents were Theo Adams Condor and Pete Condor, my father. Both of them had been born and raised in American Fork. And when I was about 18 months, we returned to American Fork. So I was raised surrounded by grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins. But... I was born in 1926, and of course the Depression started, the banks closed in that in 29, and so I had brothers and sisters being born, and we were all born uh, living through the Depression time. We always had food to eat, and I only now begin to think back and how difficult it must have been for my parents, but we seemed to have, we had a good time. We had horses. I got so I could uh, learn how to ride a horse, and and Dad was, they would be uh, hobbled in the morning, so I'd go out and get the horses and bring them back. I was the oldest of seven, and uh, I was quite a tomboy. I really was. And those were the days we had a lot of polio. And so our summers, we could no longer go to movies, matinees, because of the polio. And there was no swimming. We'd, the only swimming place in those days was Saratoga. But we couldn't go because it was felt it was very contagious. And we, and we, it confined us. And we still had together and we'd play uh, run, sheepy, run, and can, you know, all those kinds of old days. But during the summer months, we were restricted as far as those things were concerned. And during our uh, growing up years, we all had measles and chicken pox and scarlet fever. And those were the days when we were always quarantined. Uh, we moved to Twilla County. Uh, we moved to a little mining town up uh, over. O-P-H-I-R. But the school was small, so there was only two classes. The first four uh, grades went in one room, and next four grades, uh, fifth through eighth, went in the other room. I had a wonderful time. <laughs> we had roller skating parties at uh, community hall, hang up sheets and show movies. We could do in the winter. We did lots of sleigh riding because we could go down the canyon about a mile, and then when we'd come back up our one of our parents would have chili or waffles or or something. We moved to Twilla when I was in the ninth grade. I guess I was in the ninth grade when World War II started. 
What do you remember about that? It occurred on a Sunday. We heard it over the radio. Of course, there was no television. We heard it over the radio. And I knew something terrible had occurred, but I had no idea of the ramifications. I had no idea what it really and truly meant. Monday morning, we went to school. We went to an assembly very early, eight, nine o'clock in the morning, the very first thing we went to assembly and we heard President Roosevelt declare war. There was one Japanese family lived in Twila at that time and they were gone. They were already gone. My father always enjoyed reading the newspapers. And so we always had the newspapers. And I learned words like Iwo Jima and Saipan and Okinawa and Dunkirk and all of those places. And, and so I was learning. We had neighborhood boys who had was going in the military. We had families who was, received word of their... Uh, sons been injured or killed. They started building the army base out there. And the town was flooded with, Twila was a small community, maybe 6,000 people. And, but they would line up. By that time, I was working in a cafe after school and on, in the summer. They would line up the streets trying to get in to get something to eat. They, every extra room in, in any home was rented out and that because they were trying to build the, the base. And that's why I say that my life changed. It really and truly did. We became very focused. And I, I truly believe that it's the only time in my life that I saw the American people totally committed to something. We rolled up the string. We all had big bowls of string. We'd save our dimes to buy stamps to put in our saving bonds box. We'd save so many, and then we'd get a bond. Rubber was uh, gone, so tires, car tires. Gas was rationed. Sugar was rationed. My mother learned to, to, to cook very well with uh, honey and butter. was very hard to buy and get. And everyone hitchhiked. Many of the women went to work out the base. Uh, you know, it, it really changed the population in Twila because mm -hmm. of the big base. You'd see the big tanks. You'd see the big trucks. You'd see military people going by. And we knew they were making uh, storing bombs. And every once in a while, you'd hear one go off and it rattle all the windows in town and, and all. And then as we got, when I got into the senior high school, high senior class, and it had occurred beforehand, but as I became a senior, I knew I wanted to become a nurse. We went to school in the morning, and then many of the girls went out to the base to work in the afternoon and received credits. And in January of our senior year, a good number of our senior class men left. They already went into the military. And so our senior proms and were really didn't amount to, to much because, you know. No guys. That's right. And then the, the day after we graduated, the rest of the class, the male, uh, class boys went into the service. I became more conscious, more aware of national and international affairs and less on local. Mm -hmm. 
And to this day, I find myself, I like to know what's going on in the rest of the world. I, I think because of my career, but also I think it was because I was taught early. Right. So one week after I graduated on a Friday and the following week, I went in and started nursing at the University of Utah. And uh, then I went out to St. Mark's when it was out on, I think, uh, second or third west and about, about eighth or ninth uh, north in Salt Lake. And I really enjoyed nursing. It was, I don't know why I wanted to be a nurse. I had no other family members that had ever been a nurse or a doctor. It just was something that I felt that I wanted to do. I was never sorry one day throughout my career that I, that's what I had chosen. When uh, you went into nursing at that time, we became members of the Cadet Nurse Corps. Our training was financed by the government. And uh, we knew that when we finished, we either had to go into Indian service or to the military. I remember the first year we were provided with housing and, and food and $15 a month. The next year we got $20 a month, and then the third year we got $25 a month, and I survived. Wow. Once in a while, my parents would help me buy a pair of shoes. That was kind of a big item, it seemed like, but I pretty much kept myself on, on that money. What did you do for fun? Well, <laughs> it seemed like we had a good time. We'd go to the movies in Salt Lake, and we'd have parties. I don't remember us going out to, there just wasn't young men in those days. They were, were all they were all gone. Wow. I remember some of them coming back and visiting, coming to see me and visiting and, and such. The Korean War had come along. And I had not served either Indian service or military because I did not graduate until after the war was over. Hmm. In my heart I felt an obligation that I needed to pay back. I think I'd paid back with the work I'd done and all, but I still had that feeling that I owed the government. So I made application for the Navy. Didn't know anything about it. I had met a few nurses who had been on active duty and they spoke highly of it. But I didn't, when I made application, I wasn't sure to fill out all the papers. And as a result, did not ask to be a reserve officer, because I felt that only meant weekend duty, and I wanted to go on active duty. So I put down and requested. Regular Navy meant that I was applying to go into the military, and if everything went well, I could stay for a full uh, career. If I got tried to get out, I had to resign my commission. You don't do that in the reserves. In the reserves, you serve a certain length of time, you get out, but you have still retain your commission. So it took a long time for me to be accepted in Navy, about nine months, I think it took from the time I applied to, and different people in Tula would say to me, Next, are you trying to go in the Navy? Yes, all the FBI's out here asking questions about you. But I was accepted as regular Navy, one of the few but it was all done very innocently because I didn't know the difference. <laughs> Tell me about those first places of appointment. Where did you go first? Naval Hospital San Diego, the largest naval hospital we have, the United States has. Very busy when I was there because there was a lot of wounded coming back from Vietnam. 
when you joined the Navy, did you go in as an officer? Yes, oh, ensign. Okay. I was the lowest rank in the, the Navy. Then you did get put on a Navy ship. I went as a station board a hospital ship, the USS Haven. For how long? I was only there for a few months because I received orders that got to San Francisco to await transportation out to Korea. A lot of our patients on the hospital ship was civilian, Korean civilians hmm. and of all ages hmm. and of all problems, you know, obstetrics, medical care, burns. We had lots of burns, trying to keep warm and it's still gas, try to heat our places. And if we did happen to go ashore, and I went ashore twice. We had to be escorted by armed male officers. Wow. Everything was bombed out. And, and then I spent it a year after that on Guam. It had been occupied by the Japanese and so we had taken it back in about 45, and I was there in 54, so only nine years after. There were still certain parts of the island that was out of bounds to us because there was live ammunition uh, there. And there was also Japanese soldiers still on the island. They found Japanese soldiers up to about 15 years after the war stopped. They were back in, there were some hills and some jungles, and they were back in there. There was no... Uh, everything in town had been uh, pretty much uh, destroyed, so there was no stores, there was no uh, theaters, there was no restaurants, no transportation. As people were transferred off the base, they'd leave an old jeep, and we used old jeeps to uh, get around, do any shopping. We went to the military exchanges or, or PXs. We got our food from the commissaries. We ate. We lived in nurses' quarters, and so we ate at the hospital. But I had a good time on Guam. We had some nice beaches and a lot of nice people. In the military, there's never a stranger. I can only remember once really being homesick. And that's, uh, I was on Guam, a friend of mine and I were going to Hong Kong. And it was in January after Christmas. And we went to a movie and it was White Christmas. And the tears streamed down our face. But I made it a point, if I started feeling a little bit homesick, of getting involved. I'd find friends and I, you had to work at it. So after Guam, you went back home? No, I, I went to Chelsea, Massachusetts. Chelsea is a, a city across the river, across the Mystic River from Boston. I was there for two years. Chelsea yeah, was one of our very oldest hospitals. In fact, uh, it had at one time taken care of Civil War patients. The Northeast had the last big polio epidemic in the United States, and the Northeast got hit hard. The hospitals there were just flooded, Mass General, Breath Israel, and such. The Navy, had, over the years, had never taken care of contagious patients. If we had a patient with contagious disease, we had transferred him to a civilian facility. The state of Massachusetts asked us, the Navy, to please take care of their own people with polio patients. So one morning, one day, I was all working on the wards, and uh, another nurse walked on, and she said, I've come to relieve you. And I said, relieve me? Where am I going? She said, I don't know. The chief nurse said she'd be in in a few moments, and, but I'm here to relieve you, so give me a report. I gave her a report. The chief nurse came in and she said, Miss Condor, I want you to go over to the dependents building. There's awards such and such. They've been closed for years, but they've just been cleaned. 
want you to go over there, open them up for polio ward, and you better hurry because your first two patients are in the emergency room. Was this your first experience in kind of uh, leadership roles or being given, or had you had that before? I'd been put in some positions of responsibility beforehand, and so I, it didn't really throw me except the fact that there was nothing and I knew those patients were coming. So we took care of both dependents and active duty of the military. Hmm. And we had a ward full. It was the first time in my life that I could pick up the telephone and call the Emerson Company or some of the other companies direct and say, I need three more iron lungs, and I had them. They'd say, we'll be there within so many hours. Wow. I didn't go through commanding officers. I didn't go through financial officers. They say, go to it. You're in charge, whatever you need. The iron lungs were the only thing that helped them breathe. Were you ever worried yourself? I didn't have time to worry. I, now that sounds silly, but I wore a mask when I was taking care of patients and, and usually a gown and, and that. And I got very adept at putting patients into iron lungs. And it's funny, they come out and you have to use a metal hose hanger to adapt it so that you can get in there and work with them and that. And then you had to know how to work those, iron, those clothes hangers to, to get them in there. But sometimes they were only in for 48 hours. Then they could start breathing on their own and that. But you didn't dare take chances. We had one little four-year-old girl that got polio and she was in an iron lung. Before you put them in an iron lung, you did a tracheostomy on them so that you could get down there and clean out the fluid if necessary. She, after a week, she was ambulatory. She was running all around. And I remember sitting at the desk writing an order for some supplies. And I felt these two little arms go around my neck. And I got a big kiss here on the cheek. And I thought, live polio bugs right smack in my face. But what could I do? How long were you there in Massachusetts? I was there two years. Two years. Then I was uh, transferred to Camp Pendleton, California. And I was there about three and a half years. But at that point, my chief nurse said to me, Scudder, I think it's about time you think about going back to school. I was accepted and was sent back to the University of Utah for my baccalaureate. So then you did a tour of duty as a nurse recruiter? In, in Seattle, Washington. I was there three years. Now, this was during the Vietnam time, and many of the recruiters were not allowed on college campuses, mm -hmm. but they accepted nurses. Wow. We had no problems whatsoever. Interesting. And one of our senior officers that was stationed in Washington grabbed me by the arm one evening where it was a reception, and she said, Ms. Carter, do you know this lady? And I said, no, I'm, I don't think I have. She said, she is dean of the School of Nursing at the University of Washington. And she said, Ms. Conter is in recruiting out of Seattle, and she'll be making application for her master's degree at the University of Washington shortly. <laughs> I wanted a chance to practice what I had been learning and all. But I did as I was told, and I was accepted, and I went to the University of Washington and earned my master's degree in nursing. And so 
I was in Washington, University of Washington, when uh, I was selected for commander. Commander's getting up there. I was the most junior. Every time I was promoted, I was the most junior officer promoted. That's the way it fell. Hmm. I've always felt that my Navy career was not based on, but was influenced greatly by being at the right time and the right place. Promotions came, were changed about the time I was able to be promoted. School was changed when I was about eligible to be even considered. And so timing was very, played a big part in my Navy career. And yet, just as I listen to you and you have women telling the director of nursing that you'll be back for your for your master's degree. Obviously, you had a lot of talent and skill, leadership that they recognized. It had to be a combination. Well, I think it was. I, and I think I was fortunate in I, there was two things. I really liked nursing, and I really liked the Navy. Because of that, I was willing to work hard. I was willing to take chances work if they'd say how would you like to do this sure I'll give it a try why not and uh, I, I had my own druthers at times you might say but I did what they would encourage. I was really encouraged by a number of my senior officers were they all women the senior oh, yes. officers oh yes because in those days we only had women in in the nurses course the we, we did not, military did not accept male nurses for many years. They would accept them, but only as corpsmen. Hmm. Would not commission them. We were commissioned, but they were not. Hmm. And some of us felt very strongly that was wrong. And it was in the 1960s before the Navy started commissioning male nurses. The Marines fought us. The Marines didn't want male nurses. But I had a friend in Boston who I was with one day, and she said, why don't you come down to Puerto Rico? And she was stationed, she was chief nurse in Puerto Rico. And I said, oh, I could take mother and dad to celebrate their 50th to maybe to Hawaii. And she said, bring them to Puerto Rico. You can stay at my place. So I talked my folks into going to Puerto Rico. And we went in February because I knew that August, when they had been married, would be too hot. So we went Puerto Rico, and we were in Puerto Rico, and I was notified that I'd been selected for admiral. Oh wow! How did you get the word? Uh, the Surgeon General called me, Navy Surgeon oh. General. The phone system was very—I only heard about half of the words he said because the, it was very poor. But uh, the, and then the messages were started coming out, and my parents were with me down there. I bet they were very thrilled and proud. But really and truly didn't understand it all, That's you know. Terrible. They had not, I was the only one in the military, and so they, while I had keep them posted, they didn't really have an idea where I was, what it meant and such. And uh, so there was a number of parties down there, and... Honoring your appointment? Yes. The word came out, and so they climbed out. There was a couple of congressmen. They had to come and kiss an admiral. Oh, how yeah. nice. <laughs> well, everywhere I went, people wanted to kiss an admiral. They wouldn't dare kiss a male admiral, but they had to kiss an admiral. And that so reminds... I got a lot of that. A lot of kisses. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's. how did you feel? I had very mixed feelings. I felt very, I knew it was a tremendous honor, but I felt really, in many ways, sad. 
the political climate at that time, a lot of it had occurred with President Nixon when he had been released. The end of, of Vietnam, there was a lot of anti-military. There was push to change the military. There was just, the political climate was such that I felt pretty uncomfortable about what was going to occur. But in many ways, I felt very pleased and happy. And I had some feelings that was I up to it. Mm -hmm. I also had some things that I wanted to accomplish. I knew without a shadow of a doubt, because of the political uh, climate, that I would be the first director of Navy Nurse Corps of many years to serve a full four years in peacetime. I knew the American people would never allow us in those years to get back involved in any conflict. And so I knew that I would be the first director to serve four full years in peacetime. So because of that, did that open opportunities to do other things, I would assume? Yes. Such as? I wanted to provide career ladders for nurses that could be promoted to, to captain, which was the next highest under Admiral, without them uh, changing their clinical specialty. We had nurses who had spent 20, 25 years in, in the operating room. And we had big operating rooms, and we were doing fantastic work. So really, wars provide military medical facilities with some outstanding clinical training, training and clinical experience and things. But if that nurse wanted to be promoted, she had to get out of the out of the operating room and go into administration. We had nurses in other things that I wanted them to. I wanted clinical specialists to be promoted and not to feel they had to go into administration. Were you able to succeed at that? We did. We did. And at that time, you were in charge of 2,600 nurses Maybe. worldwide. All of their training, all of their recruiting, wow, um, their promotions, their assignments, where they'd be where they'd be assigned. What was the highlight of that four-year assignment? I think you told me about being at the. Oh, that was a nice time. The first time a woman had. Oh, I was the first off, uh, woman officer to serve as recruit, uh, serve as a reviewing officer at the Iwo Jima Monument. Tell me a little bit about that. That uh, Iwo Jima Monument is a big one in Washington, D.C., and the Marines, that's their monument. During the summer months, they every Tuesday evening, they have a special ceremony where they have marching Marines, they have the marching band, they have the rifle drills, uh, a lot of music. And it's an area where there's really no chairs, but it's, there's a lot of uh, grass, and people come, and they sit all around the the thing and listen to them. It's a big affair. It's mm -hmm. a, really worth going to. And they have uh, invited women and they've invited men to serve as reviewing officers. But for the very first time, I was the first woman officer ever to be invited to review the, the troops as they marched by and, and the drill team and the band and everything. 
And so that was a, a real thrill. It was 76 or 77 when the country celebrated the 200th anniversary. You mentioned your highlight of the responsibility, your trip to China in 1977. My trip to China, I went with the American Nurses Association. And while the military supported me and they didn't want me to get, they kept saying, don't let us see your name in headlines. But they wanted me to go because they wanted a, me and the other, the director of the army and the Air Force Nurse Corps, we were the first ones allowed in China because they wanted to have, send other military officers in, but they, China wouldn't let them, and we were the first, we broke that mold, you might say. And since then, they've allowed other officers, male and female, to go in there. Were you sorry to see that end, or were you ready? Was that a big responsibility, you were ready to I was off? ready, I was ready. Yeah. There was a lot of hassle to it. Oh, let me tell you, political hassle. There were people who, who can come in there and review your programs. If I had a program for operating room nurses, and they'd say, people who weren't even in medical field would come in and say, oh, you don't need that. We'll cut the money for that and things like that. There was a lot of letters written. I've had letters written to the White House, and the White House would send them over to me and ask me to answer concerning mm -hmm. nurses. There was a lot of pressure for social affairs and I I was not I did not enjoy cocktail parties and, and there was lots of those I went because I represented the women in the military I do not like small talk I've attended parties at embassies I've attended parties at the White House I've attended parties at State Department on and uh, other big affairs, but I never really enjoyed them. <laughs> Did you ever meet the president? I've met President Carter. I think he was the only one. I was invited to attend one of his inaugural receptions, hmm. and I went and met both he and his wife. And I've met and I met who was his uh, vice president. Mondale and his mm -hmm. wife. Mm -hmm. And I've met uh, Betty Ford. And I've come in contact with Rockefeller, who was vice president. And I think that's it. In your 50s at that time, you were ready to retire. But I had promoted myself out of a job. Right. <laughs> well, let me ask you a couple of different questions that are kind of outside. Who are the women, or is there a woman that's been a role model to you, someone who's had great influence on you? My mother, as I said, came from a wealthy family, and my father came from a poor family, and then they were thrust into the Depression years. My mother had, I think there was five of us children during the Depression years, and her family lost everything, too. While we had plenty of food, I've heard mothers say there was no money for rent or other uh, necessities. I didn't see that. I was at the age that it didn't register with me. But as I look back and see how she must have struggled, it must have been very difficult for her. And I saw gold star mothers in my town, and I saw wounded coming back, and I just had to admire them. There were several chief nurses that I admired in their efforts. I've come in contact with several of the nurses who were 
prisoners of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And I learned to admire their life. I'm so grateful to them that teaching me that hard work was a virtue. And they did. Through example, I don't know that they ever actually said it, but they worked hard. And it sounds like they, they enjoyed life during the hard times. They taught you to that you can do hard things and enjoy the process. We want to thank Maxine Condor for her wise words and exemplary life. She just celebrated her 95th birthday. And it isn't surprising that she still has a bright mind and is a source of energy and joy to her family and those around her. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with a friend, as well as subscribe and rate us on iTunes. To listen to the full interview with Maxine Condor and other remarkable Utah women, visit our website at utahwomenswalk.org. A special thanks to our supporters, Denise and Alan Alexander, Roman and Ann Takasaki, Julie Bagley, and Shauna Duke. And thank you to our writer and producer, Tamar Kemsley, and our editor, Ron Cool. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Legacies. Thank you.